we wait. Good morning, church. It's been a great time together already. Amen. Amen. I'm glad to be able to open up God's word with you for a few moments here. And if you were with us on Friday, of course, we looked into, as Pastor Dwayne was saying, we looked into the crucifixion. We looked specifically at the two men crucified with Jesus, one of the men in particular. And I know this because a few of you mentioned it to me, but Friday left you wanting a little bit more, didn't it? Not, not that Pastor Todd preached a bad sermon. That's not what I mean at all, okay? I don't know if he's in the room or not, but that's not what I mean. Okay, but it just left, it left something to be desired. You see, we did that on purpose. We did that on purpose because the gaps that Good Friday created, Sunday filled. We did that on purpose because the questions that Good Friday raised, Easter Sunday answered. So this morning, we'll look back. We'll continue the sermon that we heard on Sunday, we, or on Friday. We will look here on Sunday to the other side to answer those questions, to fill those gaps, to consider what Easter Sunday truly means for us. And we heard this quote at the end of the sermon on Friday. Charles Spurgeon said this, Heaven and hell are not places far away. Heaven and hell are not places far away. And so many people live like they don't believe that. If not outright denying it in their hearts, many people, Christians included, confess by the way they live their lives that they don't believe that to be true. How they live, what they prioritize what fills their minds, their dreams, what they fear. Says, in essence, I live for this life with little to no thought, but what comes after, because, if we're honest, many of us fear death. Many of us are afraid of reconciling with the fact that when we leave this earth, we will come face to face with the reality that heaven and hell exist. And so it's easier for many to not consider it at all. When the truth of Scripture says, Hebrews chapter 9, 27, is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Despite, despite what we may believe or not about what is to come after this life, this truth remains. Our days are numbered. Our lives fragile. And our time will come. We don't know when. It may be sudden. It may be slow. Now, I'm in my 20s, and people in their 20s or younger than that don't often think about this kind of thing. We have the whole rest of our lives in front of us. We don't need to think about the end of it. Now, some of you, most of you in the room, older than I am, may have to reconcile with this in your own minds more often than I do. Perhaps you feel that because your body's not functioning the way it used to. Or perhaps because you've had to reconcile with the reality of death through the loss of, loss of a loved one or a friend. Reality is, for someone in their 20s or for people older, we don't know when our time will come. 
my time, your time, maybe this afternoon. For the men crucified next to Jesus, their time came to an end sooner than I'm sure that they would have hoped. And yet because of the way they died, they had some time to reconcile with the reality of the ending of their lives. As they came face to face with their own mortality, they had a choice to make. And the choice they had to make was what would they do with the man who hung on the cross between them? And in these two men, we see ourselves. This Easter Sunday, we are going to come face to face with our own mortality. Through the final moments in the life of one of the men who died next to Jesus, of the one who is often called the penitent thief, the criminal who repented and believed. But you see, his relationship with Jesus didn't begin that way, just like ours. See this first. That man detested Jesus, as you do. Both men who were sentenced to die alongside the Christ taunted him along with the crowds who gathered to watch his execution. Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, verse 44, details it for us. When Matthew writes, and the robbers, plural, both, who are crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. They joined in to the hurling of insults, the launching of blasphemies, the direct offenses against God in the flesh that the crowd made as they watched him die. Matthew 27, 40 to 43, detail them for us. They said, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others, but cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. See, hindsight allows us to see the staggering irony of these statements. Son of God could not come down from the cross. God would not deliver him because it was God's will for him to be there. The nails that held his body to the cross wasn't what held him there ultimately. It was the will of the father and the submission of the son that kept him there. This empty promise of faith made if he came down was empty and meaningless because if Jesus did step down, there would be no blood for the forgiveness of sins. There'd be no ransom. There'd be no atonement made, no suitable payment given. There'd be no gospel to proclaim, no fulfillment of scripture. No way to defeat sin and death. No salvation. Nothing ultimately to have faith in. Luke in his gospel adds chapter 23 verse 39 that the other criminal added his own insult to all of this. He says, 
Are you not the Christ? Hey, aren't you the Messiah? Didn't you claim to be the sent one of God who would deliver us and usher in the kingdom of God? Well, save yourself and us. No doubt, excruciatingly painful for Jesus to hear. Because Jesus could have saved himself. He could have called down an army of angels to take him off the cross. But he didn't. He couldn't have been the savior of the world if he did. This request for salvation from his execution revealed to us that this criminal doesn't get it. He doesn't realize what's going on here. That it's in this act of not saving himself that Jesus becomes the savior of the world. He's able to offer salvation for all. And we are sorely mistaken. We hear these insults hurled at Jesus and believe anything else but the reality that we are guilty of the same sort of hatred against him. We detest or detested Jesus. Romans 3, 22 and 23 say it plainly. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, sin is just that. It is missing the mark that God sets. It is missing his glory altogether. Most of the time, we miss that mark willingly. John Piper defines sin in this way. It is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. And this, each and every single one of us participated in. We gave ourselves up to sin, to the influence of the evil one to the temptation to sin that he lobbied against us, that this world lobbied against us. It pulled us further and further into our own sin, separating us from the God who created us and loved us. James delivers the significance of this to us in his letter, chapter four, verse four, when he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, is active opposition with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That was us. That was me. That is you. Now, in saying that we detested God, I mean, it, it sounds harsh. I mean, maybe your story's a little bit like mine. My, my family came to faith in Christ a little later on, but... Even before my family came to faith, we were raised with a God consciousness. I mean, I, 
learned how to say the Lord's Prayer when I was really young. We went to church on Christmas and Easter. I would say very clearly that I never actively detested God. And yet in my willful rebellion to his will and his ways, I did. Each one of us without Christ bears the weight and guilt and consequence of our sinfulness. The sinfulness that separates us from God and destines us to a penalty of just eternal punishment in hell. That is what faced the criminals who hung on the cross next to Jesus. And it was that, not their impending execution that they needed saving from. Because you see, they were living out Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. You have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. While facing legal punishment for your crimes against God in this world, this world which becomes way more okay with sinful things day by day and is in fact getting to the place of punishing even those who fulfill the commands of God. Well, that may not be that sort of legal punishment be what we face in this life, or you may not even be as extreme or overt in your detesting of God as these two criminals. Make no mistake, you will face the perfect and ultimate judge when you leave this earth. And unless your sins are dealt with by someone who can deal with them perfectly and permanently, they will come back on you. They will find you out. Your relationship with God is broken because of your sin. All of us detested Jesus. The sentence that those crimes you committed against him brings can never be completely fulfilled. Your punishment will last for all of eternity because you, by your actions, your words, your thoughts, detest Jesus and that secures your guilt. Unless, unless you see the Savior and respond like this criminal did. Because he appealed to Jesus, as you must. At some point in the midst of all of this, something clicks for this man. As the other criminal hurled his own insult at Jesus, as our man had been doing just minutes before, now he rebukes the other criminal. Luke 23, verse 40. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Now, at risk of sounding disparaging to this man, because that's not at all what I, I want to do here, many commentators give him too much credit. They think that in this moment, this man fully understands the reality of Jesus' true messiahship. And, and quite frankly, we just can't be sure of that. But what we do know is that in these moments, this man expresses three things. First, a fear of God. And this is the proper starting place for all of us. It is a recognition of our guilt and the desperate state that our sin had us in before a holy, righteous, perfect, sinless God. This man confesses. He admits 
perhaps for the first time, his guilt. He owns his own sin. See, the only way to receive forgiveness is through a fear of God. A proper understanding of our sinful, guilty standing before him and his perfect holiness. Secondly, this man goes on to express the innocence of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 23, verse 41. He says, but this man, this one in between us, he's done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. He saw that Jesus was different. He heard the prayer that Jesus gave to the father as the cross was brought up. When he said, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And whatever it was that this man saw, he knew he needed one thing. He wanted in on that forgiveness. He seemed to know that the way to forgiveness and freedom was found in this innocent man who was dying beside him. So thirdly, he cries out for deliverance. Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, he identifies him calls him by his name, Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. In this desperate moment, he humbles himself before Jesus and comes to him, addressing him as he is, asking to be remembered. Perhaps in this moment, it's coming to the mind of this man all the times that God has remembered his people for for hundreds of years and generations before. God remembered Noah God remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembered David, his man. God remembered his people. This man recognizes that which Peter proclaims as he preaches to many of the same religious leaders who were there for Jesus' crucifixion. And just months later, he says to them, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Because see, salvation comes in no one and nothing else but Jesus Christ alone. It's not in moral living. Trying to balance the scales of good and evil by doing more good things than bad things. That's not it. It's not in religious observance. Believing that in some way you just being here is going to mean that God's going to bless you or favor you. It's not in anything that this world can offer. comes only through appealing to the son of God who died for you. I mean, this, this criminal had no time to understand the core doctrines of our faith. He had never heard words like justification, atonement, or sanctification before. He wasn't a member of the church. He had no chance to be baptized. He couldn't serve. He couldn't hop down to harvest kids and teach a class. In fairness, he wouldn't have passed a police record check anyway. I, Besides the point, he couldn't shake the hand of a first-time guest on the welcome team. His hands were nailed to a cross. He couldn't even fold his hands to pray. He had no opportunity to prove to others that he was saved by what he did. He may have been able to, at best, pay lip service to this newfound faith that he had, but he had only mere moments, maybe an hour or two to live before he would leave this earth. 
You see, by all the metrics that we use to define or determine what is salvation or who is saved, this man could never do enough. But he saw something different in Jesus. He noticed something different in the man he was hanging next to. So he appealed to him. He threw himself at the mercy and the grace of the God that he was about to face. And we must simply believe that the Holy Spirit was moving in him to bring him to this place. And when he faced the judgment seat of God and was asked why he deserved to be granted entry into paradise, this man had nothing that he could point to in his own life, nothing that he had ever done. This man had only one claim. It's what Scottish pastor Alistair Begg puts so powerfully. The only thing he could say is the man on the middle cross said I could come. And so it should be for all of us. You see, forgiveness and and freedom and, and welcoming into the family of God comes not from anything that we can do, but it is, it is granted of God as simply as Paul says it in Romans chapter 10, verse nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved. Not, hey, maybe if you just do all this extra stuff over here. No, no, you will be saved if what? You confess and believe. It is simply enough to believe that Jesus will save you from your sins if you ask him. It is enough if all you can understand here this morning and take away as you leave this place is to believe that Jesus will forgive you if you appeal to him to be saved. It's enough. It's that simple. This man doesn't know how salvation happens. He can't unpack theologically how it's going to work. He has no apologetic. He has no defense. He has no quotes. He doesn't even have scripture memorized. Couldn't give an answer if someone asked. All he does is know that he needs forgiveness. That his sins stand before him and a holy God. And so he asks. He appeals to Jesus, and he was saved by Jesus, as you may be. Hearing all that this man said and knowing the reality of his heart, Jesus turns to him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Yes, we do believe that in a moment, as quickly as this one happened, the sins of an entire lifetime, the sins that you have done, the sins that you will do, can be perfectly and completely paid for through the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. This is no mere false hope hope given to comfort a man in his last moments. This is the changing of a life. 
from the hopelessness of death to the joys of life eternal, to the comforts, to the peace of the adoption into the family of God, sin and death defeated, debt fully paid, the crimson stain washed white as snow, darkness transformed into light, guilty declared innocent. Because the sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The promise that we have as those saved by God's grace, his his undeserved favor through faith is that when the time comes, we too, those who have been saved by him, will be with him in paradise. Romans 10 or 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And this is the joy of Sunday. That God in his grace sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, which won for me that which I could never earn or achieve on my own. A way to be restored in perfect relationship with God, a way into his family. Through faith in him, trusting in who he is and what he did on the cross, I can be saved free from the power of sin and death, which is a most amazing truth, but it doesn't end there. Because Jesus died, he was buried and he, buried and he rose to new life three days later. And that death that could not hold him no longer has any hold on those who are saved by him. The sins of all humanity that he bore on himself, causing him to be forsaken by God the Father, are defeated forever. When he walked out of that grave, he is risen. And not only are our sins forgiven and our debt before God is wiped clean, but we are risen with him. We have new life in him. It's the culminating moment of all of history. It's the game changer. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there would be no hope in life for those who are living in death. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5 say this, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have this hope to cling to as we live this life. We have this hope to hold on to as we live out our faith of what is to come. No more guilt. No more shame. No more separation from God. Only acceptance and forgiveness and restoration because of his grace. Now this world is not our home. We have an inheritance as sons and daughters of the king waiting for us in paradise. We live for him here and now as those who have been brought from death to life, from darkness to light, whose 
Eternity has been transformed in the moment that salvation comes to you through his death, burial, and resurrection. And the the confirmation and power at work within us of the Holy Spirit bestowed upon us at the moment that you are saved to change you, to transform you every single day that you live this life into the image of Christ. As we do, as we live here, the call is to bring others to that truth to help them to see the reality of the beauty of the gospel, to call them to this life until we go see our Savior face to face. See, all of Good Friday, all of Easter Sunday, points simply to this. If Jesus could save this unnamed criminal, and he did, He can save anyone. He can even save you. Salvation from sin and death is is far simpler than we make it out to be. No matter where you are or what you've done or where you've been, Jesus is calling you today. Come. And he says in John chapter 6, verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This world's going to cast you out. This world will take everything you have. It'll take everything from you. It'll chew you up and it'll spit you out. It'll never happen with Jesus. Salvation could be yours if you come to Jesus today. No one is too far from the infinite grace of and mercy of God. However great your sin, however long you've sinned, if you believe in Jesus, he will save you. And if he saves you, he will change you. He will give you a new heart. He will make you right with God. He will pay for and cover your sins. He will renew you from death to life in the same way he did when he stepped out of the grave. He will confirm the reality of the change that's happened in you as the Holy Spirit comes upon you. If that hasn't happened yet for you, that can happen today. That can happen right where you are. Cry out to Jesus. Admit the reality of the fact that you detested him. Admit your guilt. Own your sin. Appeal to him for forgiveness and salvation. He will save you. And if salvation is yours, then these truths ought to be the foundation of our lives every day. These realities of the gospel ought to transform us moment by moment. That we may live in his will. That we may show the world around us the glorious truths of the gospel. Because our lives are fragile. Our days are numbered. And heaven and hell are not places far away. Our time may come slowly or it may come quickly. 
standing before the righteous judge is only a breath, a heartbeat away. And heaven, not hell, can be your place not so far away. It all hinges on this one question. How will you respond to Jesus' death, burial, and glorious resurrection? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do stand truly and completely amazed at the awesomeness of the resurrection. Jesus, you made a way for us while we were still your enemies, actively opposing and detesting you by how we lived our lives to be adopted into the family of God, to be restored in relationship with him, to be made new, to be taken from darkness to light. Hallelujah, Jesus, we praise you. And we pray right now for any who are here in the room or watching at home who do not yet have the confidence to say that, who have not yet bended the knee, who have not yet admitted their sinfulness, the reality of it, what it causes for them, who have not appealed to you asking for forgiveness and salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would be breaking down whatever walls they have built up around their heart, that the truths of what they have just heard from your word, what you did for us, Jesus, would penetrate into the very core of who they are and transform them completely. You have the power to do that, Lord. It's not by anything we can do, so do it, we pray, for the glory of your name. And Father, we pray for any here who do have that salvation, but whose hearts have grown cold to this who have sought in some way to add to the realities of salvation by works, by what we can do, by our own merits. Father, forgive us. Wiping our feet on the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ by making it more complicated than it really is. The simplicity and the beauty of the gospel, the good news of you coming to this earth and dying our death, Jesus, and rising to new life on the third day, we will spend the rest of our lives and all of eternity marveling at. So forgive us for making it something it's not. Forgive us, Lord, for putting this to the side. Putting the gospel on the shelf in favor of something else that this world claims to offer us. God, make the gospel the greatest thing in our lives. Make it the foundation and core of who we are. God, take these truths so deep into the core of, of, of our lives that every part of us lives out from that. And God, do it for your glory, we pray. We don't want it. If you don't move and work, nothing else matters. If you don't show up, what are we doing here? So move and work. You are our only hope. You are the only one worthy. You are the only one worthy. We pray this in your wonderful, powerful, mighty, 
awesome name, our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.